Hey there, it's Raleigh. I want to catch you before this episode to tell you about our new and improved bonus podcast, More Mercy. Each week, I break down a MercyCast episode and show how it not only intersects with Scripture, but how it impacts our daily lives. This short devotional episode is only $3 a month, which is like $4 less than a cup of coffee at the Mermaid Place. To access it, all you have to do is click the link in the show notes. Remember, no matter what you're going through, there's always more mercy. And now, on with the show. And here we are again. Welcome to the Mercy Cast, where we're learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life. I'm your host, Raleigh Sadler. Several years ago, as I was starting Let My People Go, I found myself in a precarious situation. I'm working 90 hours a week. I'm exhausted, but I am doing everything I can to empower the local church to fight human trafficking by loving those most vulnerable. But what I didn't realize was my own vulnerability. I didn't really know anything at that point about secondary trauma, how we can take on the experiences of others as we're caring for them. I was pretty blind to basically what was happening to me. And here I am, I'm working 90 hour weeks, I'm sleeping three hours a day, but I'm getting stuff done. There's articles being written. There's all sorts of things out there that people are hearing about that I'm proud of, that I'm excited about. There's momentum. And then one day, my friend Neil calls me and he says, I love all the stuff you're doing. It's really great. I want to see you do this for 20 years and not just two. Well, in that moment, I wasn't defensive, but I was curious. I was like, tell me more. And he goes, if you keep at this pace and you're not actively caring for yourself and you're not making sure that your own needs are being met, you're going to burn out. You're not going to make it. And he began to tell me a little bit more about his journey. Neil went to India to train people on the ground how to care for those who've experienced trauma after a major tsunami. He thought he was going to stay for a year and really build infrastructure there and give people tools through which they could do this for years to come. But what happened was he only lasted three weeks because he wasn't able to care for himself. He was so focused on meeting the needs of others that he neglected his own needs. Today, I am joined by Neil Salzman. He's the founder and executive director of The Rest Initiative, an organization offering proactive care for those in vulnerable situations. Neil, welcome to the MercyCast. Hey, Raleigh. So glad to be here. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Excited to catch up with you and spend some time with you. Yeah, me too. Neil and I went to the University of Central Florida together. Neil, since I've known you for a while, I've seen kind of ups and downs. I've seen you overcome major things in your life. And this is one of them. You got to India and you knew you couldn't make it. What was going through your mind at that time? That was about 20 years ago. So it's been a while, but I I remember it quite clearly. I don't know what was going through my mind, except that I had to get out of here. That was what was going through my mind. No, I, I was over in India. We were you know, had a, a vision to really develop, like you said, some infrastructure around caring well for victims. I had just finished seminary, had a master's in counseling, and really felt like we had some really good tools to offer. And when we got over there, my body said, no more. I was going at a pretty hard pace for the last four years prior to that. I was working full-time, seminary full-time. 
and my body with all of the transitions of living overseas. And I've been overseas many times and uh, did some work overseas for, for quite a while before that. But something, when I got to India, my body said, nope. And it, it, it gave out and I started having some anxiety and feeling exhausted, feeling overwhelmed. Luckily, I had some good friends with me who helped take care of me when I was there and, and decided to come home. And, and that's where I think for me, recognizing the opportunity to step back and go, what, what was going on with me? What, something's not right. And this, this process for me to really care for my own heart and really invite others to care for me as well. Um, it began that season. When you said that your body screamed at you, no more. I think many of us, we don't listen to our bodies. We don't understand if we're experiencing anxiety, we, we don't think, well, this could have an effect on my body, but you're saying, no, my body was done and you go home. What was that process like as you were checking in with yourself? Well, my body gave out in the sense like it had no other options. Like I, I didn't, it's not that I was getting little signs of it. It, it just stopped. I mean, I feel like I stopped eating. I stopped I even thinking clearly, a lot of fear, a lot of worry about the future, um, a lot of loneliness, probably some depression mixed into that too when I got back. On top of that, just some probably humiliation. I mean, I was just really embarrassed to come back. It was felt like I failed. And it was this thing I set out to do was this incredible purpose and this mission, if you will. Um, yeah. It's like a failure. And so that combined coming back all together was just really a, a heaviness. And it was a pretty dark season of my life for sure. And so you start unpacking that when you get back. Did you find some counselors? Did you find people who actually have been down a similar road? What were those next steps like? Yeah, I remember I mean, I had a number of different things. Being a therapist myself, I had some good friends who were therapists. And so I, Immediately, I got in, got in some sessions with a good friend of mine who's a therapist who could really just spend some time caring for me. I did meet a man from my church who had a very similar experience. He was in, I believe, in South Korea and did some missions work. An older man in our church who's an elder, actually. I remember, he had me over for dinner and, and really cared for me. I mean, validated kind of God's, God's kindness in this and that letting this kind of fall apart. And just reminded me of, of who I was. And so even this, this idea of self care that we hear in, in culture, what, what began to shape in me was, was it, it wasn't so much self care. It was others care. It was, it was actually care of the self by others. And what I needed was less me caring for myself. And what I really began to experience is how other people can care for me. And that really shaped my perspective of even, I think scripturally of how one of the words we use a lot with the rest initiative is the word tend. Um, and I think it comes out of this experience in India. I needed lots of tending. And it wasn't, you know, but my story spent a lot of time really taking care of myself and getting places and doing things and making decisions. And it was kind of a foreign concept to be tended to. And I think me coming back from India, I was so desperate and such a hard place. People started tending to me. That was eye-opening, and it was actually, I think, the big part of what, of how my heart healed um, and began the process of healing. It began to create space for me to even wrestle with my story and my past. So my, 
you know, I, I would say I was not a very anxious person. But if you ask my, my parents, they would say I came home from the hospital as an anxious little kid. Uh, but I, I didn't know that. I was so distracted or disconnected as I began to kind of explore my story. Mm. And others began to tend to me in that space. I'd say that, that's when this healing began to, ha- to happen. You described coming back home, not as a hero, but feeling like you failed. But also, as you describe it, it sounds like you see this as a formative experience in your life. Like this showed you that you couldn't fix your own issues on your own. You needed others to come alongside of you. This idea of community is inerrant in what you're saying. Like it's this idea that I love how you say being tended to, because that does, that requires a certain element of humility in our lives to be able to say, no, I don't have it all together. And actually, I'm not sure I was ever supposed to have it all together. And when we talk about self-care, it's really easy to get lost on this idea of we're just doing things for ourselves. I think it's important to give yourself space, give yourself boundaries, but giving yourself relationships and allowing people to speak into your life is also very critical. And so you have these people who are feeding into you right now and they're speaking into your life. What did that teach you? Well, I think mainly it taught me I can't do it by myself. That was a huge aspect to this that for so much, for so long, it was just me. I can do it. And being God, myself up got by my bootstraps, you know, I can make this work. Right. And I, and I would say I had a pretty deep, intimate connection with the Lord. And, and I was, I think there was a dependence on God, but, but I find it interesting that, that even that and in God's design wasn't, I wasn't meant to do it by myself. And, and I think again, what the elder of the church reminded me of, it's really God's kindness to, and I think for me to come back. And learn, I can't do this by myself. I wasn't made to do it by myself. And that, I think, was a, an incredible eye-opening time where, for me, someone that was was pretty independent, could do things when, when, I was single, when, and now I wanted to do them, and uh, whenever I wanted to do them. And I think for me to come back and realize, I really need people to tend to me. And and there's a, a deeper part of just doing things that I actually just needed to be with people who knew me and saw me and, and could love me well, and particularly in those places. And it's out of that place of being cared for well that I, I think, pretty sure that that's where the motivation and the, the, the energy, the, the spirit of God, I think, began to fill me up to then go out and, and do what he's called me to do, to be who he's Design me to be. A lot of people will hold up this idea of monastic piety, this idea of like you're on your own. But if we look even at the monastic movement, there is a strong sense of community. People were there. They were there for each other. And you really tapped into this idea that it was never supposed to just be us and God. It's us in community with God while we're also in community with others. This idea of community is really integral into humanity. We can't necessarily be who we are without others. And I think that's hard for us to figure out. And so these other people, they're speaking into your life. You are healing in a sense. You're seeing different aspects of yourself. And then at what point did you think, I know that there are other people like me who are compassionate. They're drawn to others. They want to do work, but maybe they don't know how to be resilient. When did you come to this point where you're like, 
I want to help them. Well, I'd say a big part of that was recognizing one that I had community. I, mean, I actually went over to India with some really close friends. But when I began to realize the difference between good community and intimate community, Ooh, that's good, is it makes a big difference. And I feel like we need both. I and mean, in some sense, I, I have community. And there are things I, I do things with people. I even do mission stuff with people or uh, we have, I have fun with some good acquaintances at times. But, but when it comes to me, begin, what I begin to do is understand this idea of intimate community where for me that it was new in the sense of they really knew me, like they really saw me. And, and I wasn't too much or I wasn't too dirty or I wasn't too weak, but where I was enough. And, mm. and this idea of intimate community is where I began to experience a lot more rest, a deeper sense of renewal. And as I began to answer your question, I think what, what I began to see, especially having gone to seminary and having a number of friends who went on to pastor churches and run nonprofits, as I began to see that, that a lot of folks were in similar positions that I was when I was over in India. Alone, isolated, great intentions. Yeah. I mean, very skilled. I mean, very skilled. I mean, way smarter than I'll ever be. Entrepreneurial kind of thinking and motivations and passions. But they were in the same positions, isolated, lonely, fear of failure. And I, I began to think, what, well, what, who's got their back? Who's going to tend to them so they don't burn out in six months, three weeks was me or maybe a couple of years. Who's got their back to assure that they're going to be there 20 years? And that's where, for me, I began to think, and with a number of colleagues, it wasn't just me. And there was a number of us when I got back from India that started having these conversations of something needs to be done. Remember in my, I was, I had a private practice and we're seeing a number of these leaders in my office and I began to think, man, if I could have had this conversation like six months ago, we probably wouldn't be in this place. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's not only who's going to tend to them, but can we tend to them from more of a proactive posture? Can we, can we start conversations earlier? Can we develop intimacy before crisis hits? So when crisis does it inevitably, that there are, there's systems, there's intimacy in place. Carry, and absorb the weight of whatever's going to happen. When I lived in New York, one thing I noticed about myself and a lot of my friends was we liked being productive and we liked getting a lot of things done. And we liked the fast pace because when life was going fast, you didn't have to think about other things that were plaguing you. You didn't have to really worry about certain things because you didn't have time to. But when you go at that pace, you will burn out. And I hit a wall myself. And I remember you had just come to me and you brought that up. And then shortly after I hit a wall and I needed help. And we had had that conversation and I was able to tell my board, no, let my people go is going to instill rhythms of resiliency into everything we do. So everyone who's a part of this organization is not only going to learn how to care for others, but they're going to learn how to get their own needs met. And you tended to me through that process and introducing me to resiliency coaching and things of that nature. And I think that's so important because I agree, man. It's so many of us want to be seen, but we're also scared to be seen. 
We want to be seen when we have it all together. We want to be seen when we're just crushing it, but we don't want to be seen when we lose our temper or we fail or what have you, whatever looks like the end of the world to us. We don't want others to see that because we're so scared we'll lose them. And you're saying, no, you had a community around you that helped you grow because they were safe, they were there, and they weren't going anywhere. They saw you for you and they loved you. And I think there's something divine about that too, because this is how God sees us. He loves us as we are. He doesn't love the false self that we project. He loves the real self. And that's actually the one that he died for. That's the one that Jesus lived, died, and rose for, was that real version of us, not the one that has all the Sunday school answers. And and yeah, man, I'm challenged because that can be such a scary place. But I think for us to grow, we have to come to a point where we embrace that. Do you agree? For sure. Definitely. As I'm here to talk, what I had, I had nothing to do with it, but I had people who were willing to pursue the real me. There was mature folks around me that were willing to pursue that real person that you just talked about. That's the difference. That they recognize so much of my performance and my doing and my striving was really a, an angst for validation, need for attention. But they pursued my heart in a way that allowed me to rest, to be a scene and be enough and be okay. Not for what I produce, not for what I do, but for who, as an image bearer, for who I am. And that was the difference, I think. They, they pursued me in the same way you just mentioned in the gospel. I mean, that's who Christ died for. The real me and the fake me, he died for. And, and he, he, knew, he knows that and he saw that, he sees that. But for my friends to really have the motivation and have the maturity to pursue my heart in the midst of that place, I didn't have it all together. That's, that was the difference. They pursued the real me. They were interested. They were curious in who that was, which created space for me to not have to perform anymore. Hmm. I don't know if that's kind of what you were. No, that's good. The, about, but... the recovering perfectionist in me loves everything that you're saying because so much of our struggles are bound in our desire to perform so that we matter, so that we're accepted, so that we have everything. But if we come close to failure, then we have this feeling that we could lose everything. But when we learn of this idea of, I don't have to have it all together. I'm loved as I am. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Well, that changes things for us. If you're listening now and you're thinking, well, this doesn't sound like self-care to me. Maybe our views of self-care may be skewed. Maybe our views of resiliency may be more shaped by what we're reading in pop magazines or online than by what we need as humans. And one question I want to ask you, first of all, you've already touched on it, but I have found that when I started talking about self-care, I started getting a lot of pushback. And I mean, even people I'd known for a while, they'd be like, well, this isn't consistent with the gospel. And I think, I think there is a natural human desire to push back on this. But what would you say? We've touched on it, but would you say that self-care is consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ? My first inkling is to step back and go, so what, what do you mean by self-care? Mm. And is there a, a definition or a, a posture of care that is, that does involve the self that is consistent with scripture? And I think obviously there is. Do I think there's a, a, a definition of self-care that is very inconsistent with scripture? Definitely. 
So when I when I think of the idea of self-care. That's important what to I, draw that distinction. My mind goes to the idea, and I forget, someone said this, I, I don't remember who exactly is, but it's always stuck with me. The difference between working from your rest and resting from your work, or the difference between resting from your work and working from your rest. That idea of care, and when I understand of scripture, moves us to a place of, I'm working out of a place of rest. Care is creating a place of rest that I can then work from. And I think you see that in, in Genesis from the beginning is even when God wrote Genesis to the people of Israel, it, when they were in the Exodus, when they were in the desert, they had to be reminded of what, you know, coming from a place of production, building, making bricks. And they had to be reminded that who you are is not based on what you do. And one of the ways, and lots of ways, but one of the ways is even reordering the day, you know, evening and morning, day one, evening and morning, day two. Like you, you rest first in the evening, then you work. I mean, as opposed to waking up, working, and then resting. I also think quite ironic that man was made on the sixth day. And the very next day, he rested. And the first thing he did was rest. And so there's this, this consistent theme of rest. Out of that deep rest, and I think that rest of uh, knowing who you are and your identity, I think knowing what, what shapes you as the beloved, working out of that place creates a different posture towards work. And, and when I think of care of the self, tending to the self, it's, it's creating space where we're reminded of what's true. And that's, and that's by resting well in the beginning so that I can then move out and work. And so if that's what I'm beginning to think of, of rest or of self-care, if you will, I think that's incredibly biblical. And I think it's gospel-centered because of and, First John, I loved you before you even loved me. Mm. It, it, it's it's God's love on us, not because we have all of our stuff together, or we have it figured out, or we have this great purpose and this calling in our lives. Like that has nothing to do with God's delight in us. And if that can be the posture I start out with, because I've been tended to and pursued, not because necessarily I sat and watched Netflix for ten hours and just distracted myself. But because, but because my heart was truly tended to, like by doing things that bring me life, that connect with people that are intimately connected with me and know me and know my story, try doing life out of that place. It's going to look so much different. And I think that's how resiliency is developed. I can bounce back because resiliency is being able to bounce back after dysregulation or crisis or trauma. I can do that because the foundation is laid. The deep rest has been experienced. You talk about working from rest rather than working for rest. You talk about when you quote First John, working from love. But so many of us, when we are just burning the candle at both ends and through the middle, we're working for love. We're working for acceptance. We're working for community. We're working for respect. We're working for money. We're working for everything. But you turn that on its head and you say, no, scripture shows us that the design was always to work from a place of surplus, not scarcity, a place where you have what you need. And so now what do you want to do? It's like when we think about the gospel, when we realize that this was done for you, the next question is, okay, now that everything is done for you and that you're right in the eyes of God, what are you going to do? Well, as you mentioned, I think that's why. When we think of care of the self, particularly as an organization that we serve, 
how important it is, 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 is story work. I mean, knowing our story, being able to think about, learn from our past, one of our taglines is learning our past so we can name our present, so we can create our future. I mean, so much of care of the self is learning about our past because it gives indicators. It explains why we do what we do in the present. And out of that deep sense of care and rest and clarity, we, we have the freedom to create, which, which is part of our design to be creators. And so it's really important that the care that we, we get during those seasons where we meet it is, is also involves learning our past is the deep story work. Why do I do what I do? Why do I continue to have these same patterns in my life? Why do I fear this? And particularly what you mentioned earlier, why am I so driven to perform? Right. Like there is a reason for that. And it's not just because you're a sinner. Right. It's right. It's because of your story. And, and we want to explore the why in our story that gives us a greater context then to go create, to move out of our rest into what we want to do, what God's gifted us to be. Well, I love that you just brought up story work because this is a constant refrain in the Mercy cast, whether it was the interview I did with Guy Wasco, where we talked about kind of embracing your own story and understanding who you have become based on what you've experienced. Or I have a section in my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking, where I talk about a suffering timeline, where I talk about how we can be shaped through the things that we've gone through. But oftentimes we are running from our stories. We don't want to accept what's happened in the past, whether we've done it or it's been done to us. But there's this idea of once we accept that, then we can choose what to do next. John 21, Jesus is doing something really specific and incredibly healing. And I'm drawn to this because, because of what it means to all of us and how we tend to our hearts. Jesus sends a scene in John 21 with a charcoal fire. And he begins to create breakfast for Peter. And Peter sees him from the distance and jumps out of the water and swims over him. Where in the past, he's, he's fell down on the, and says, I'm not worthy. But he jumps over there, jumps in the water and moves towards Jesus. And there's this charcoal fire with breakfast. And, and Jesus will ask him three questions. But what is he doing? What's, what's what happens? Like one other place in scripture that the charcoal fire is mentioned is John 18. Jesus is recreating the scene of of Peter's greatest shame, his greatest embarrassment mm. is the place where he denied him three times. And he's to the, to the specific aspect of charcoal fire. And then he asks him, Peter, do you love me? Go feed my sheep. He asks this almost the same three questions yeah. again. Why is he doing that? Because he knows the place of Peter's deepest shame and probably the heaviest that he's been in regards to relationship with Christ. He's recreating the scene because it, we have to deal with our past. We have to go back to the place of our shame and it has to, we have to find healing and almost, almost with specific particularities because that's the place that's going to free us up. And, and Jesus does that with Peter. He says, Peter, see the fire? Remember this? You remember the smell? Remember when you denied me? I want to bring you close to me and I want to remind you that that you're, you're, as you repent, as you move towards me, you're okay. And as I ask you these three questions, I can remind you that you're going to go out and be the, the rock that my church is built on. You're going to go out and be, be my man. And what I want to love about that story in John 21 is 
it's recreating the same scene in John 18. So Peter can find deep healing in his story. And I'm, so I'm drawn to that as I think about care of the self. I think of what's going to create that rest, what's going to create uh, a deep sense of security. Many times it's recreating the stories with good friends where healing can happen, where great harm or maybe shame has occurred in our stories. We can be tended to so that we can be launched just like Peter was. And so I, I think to your point earlier that is it biblical? Is it gospel-centered? I mean, Jesus did that. He modeled the very thing for us. And what does it look like to recreate your story without reliving your trauma? Well, that's, I think that's the, the challenge. And in some ways, you will have to relive your trauma. Mm. But can we relive our trauma in the context of great safety and care that will produce healing, that produce a sense of freedom? And that's the, the, the challenge of being a therapist is, you are having to recreate some sense of that trauma or some sense of that great pain, but with the hope and the security that, that great things will come, great healing will happen as a result. And that's, that's really good story work. If you're just telling a narrative from like reading a book or you know, as Dan Allender often says, if I'm telling the story from you know, 50,000 feet, quite different than telling the story when you're deep down in the weeds at 5,000 feet. And that, that aspect is, of a good therapist who will offer context for really good story work will get you down in the weeds and it will, you'll feel it. Yeah. But you'll feel it in a way that's in with incredible healing. I mean, I think Peter felt, I mean, the shame that must come up when he smelled the charcoal fire. He must have been reminded of like, I don't want to go here. But the invitation and the tenderness of, of Christ, the tenderness that hopefully a good friend or a good pastor or therapist will bring, will bring great healing to those places of deep pain. And they will then therefore go and have the power and the control that that has in our lives, our present. It's amazing that even in that story, you see Jesus meeting Peter in the place he feared the most, in his biggest shame. And Jesus was present there. I love how you were talking about the charcoal, because I don't know if I've ever seen it that way. Because generally when I hear that passage, I'm like, Jesus ate fish. Everyone, everyone, he ate fish. That's where I go. You know, it's like, it's like he could eat fish. He, he, he came back. Now he's eating fish. This is amazing. But this charcoal idea, this shame, this Jesus coming to Peter and not casting him out, but basically saying, just like he denied Jesus three times, now Jesus asks him three questions. That is so. That's fascinating. So redemptive. It's so, I mean, just think of the, the settledness within Peter's heart. Matt, I mean, I, just coming to that scene when you're alive, like, this is crazy. What are you doing here? Then I smell the, the charcoal fire. I'm reminded of the shame. So you, you, the anxiety that he must have, I mean, I would imagine, obviously, scripture isn't clear, but with that, but the anxiety he must have felt, the fear of, of living towards this, this savior. And yet I leave in the tending of his heart. I leave with such a settledness, with such a security of who I am. And that, that incident that happened two chapters before in John 18 doesn't define me. Wow. I don't have to prove myself anymore. I don't have to, I don't have to work hard enough. I don't have to strive and perform 
no longer does it define me. And when the good story work is done, I think that's what happens. Our hearts are settled. We move out of a place of fear and panic to a place of real rest. There's a picture from John 21 that you, in a sense, see Peter facing his shame and accepting it while also inviting God and others into it. Really, God invites himself into it. And I think as we are processing our own stories, we can do really well when we're dealing with the Bush League stuff in our life, the things that really didn't mess us up, the things that didn't really hurt us, the things that didn't create a response where we were going to do the exact opposite. We can do really well when we're addressing those things, but when we get to the big things, it's very easy to freeze up. It's very easy to get scared. It's very easy to want to run. But doing this with people that feel safe, and I would assume that G- that Peter felt safe with Jesus. I would assume that, especially jumping out of the boat, swimming to him, charcoal. I mean, he's at that point, he's able to face that because there is someone who, like you said earlier, is tending to his soul in a very rich and real way. Someone who will not run away from the true Peter because he's seen him. He knows him through and through. And I think that is what we desire. You know, our experience has taught us to run. Our experience has taught us to flee. But when we are tended to, and when we see our own story and see how we've fled, but then we see how some people have tended to us, we're going to want that more and more. And the pros will outweigh the cons at some point in our lives. What are a couple of things that you could give our listeners, maybe a few pieces of advice that would help them as they think to really own their own story, think through resiliency and self-care? What are some things that you would give us to help us as we go along our way? Great question. A few thoughts. First being that resiliency starts a long time before we need it. And by that, I mean is when I need to be resilient, in those moments of deep um, pain or if I'm working with people and I experience trauma, when I need to bounce back, the work that's done way, way before that moment is what's going to contribute the most to my resiliency. And, and, and that's for those of us now, maybe you're in it and things are going pretty well and you're like, I don't need anything. I'm good. Now's the time to engage in good work and good care. Being tendered to so that I will be resilient. Mm. That starts now, before the crisis, before the, the grind, if you will. Um, and the second thought is what I, I think for me coming back from India, recognizing it with my head low and the shame I felt. In a lot of ways, I thought it's up to me now. I have to do the hard work. And I'd miss the fact of like, I just need to show up. I don't need to do anything really. What I learned from people that really cared for me, and I was blown away to this day. I, I'm so grateful for these folks. I just had to show up and let them tend to me. I didn't have anything left to work hard. So a lot of folks said, I need to, okay, now's the time. I need to buckle down and do the hard work. Maybe for a lot of us, it's just, just show up. Let someone else do the hard work. Yeah. And the hard work's free for the care of your heart. And so I'm, I'm building myself backwards here, you know, resiliency. If I'm going to be resilient, if I'm going to make it, 
especially in those hard times, the work starts months, years before. And that might just be developing coping skills, might be developing how to process, how to regulate emotions when I get angry or when I get triggered, just developing coping skills. Yeah. But it also does involve, I believe, dealing with your story, tending to those places that have impacted you. Just like we just read John, or just shared John 21. I mean, Jesus tended to Peter in that place of great shame. Maybe there are moments of great shame or great trauma or things that have happened to us. That's good story work. So it starts way before and then involves coping skills all the way to dealing with your story. I think, and then it's just showing up, letting others begin that work. And I think in that process of showing up, you develop some, some momentum, you develop some skills to connect dots, to be a little more vulnerable with your emotions. But that happens as we're being cared for. Yeah, if I think of my, my friends who are in ministries or in nonprofits, if I can encourage, if I would have loved them well, it'd be to say that, hey, let's start early. Let's develop some rhythms around tending to your heart. And that might be, again, coping skills might be your story, but just show up. Let us, let me do the work to care for you. That's what I would really, I'd want for my good friends. That is so good. And I think as we've talked about self-care today, you've really helped us see it in a different light to where we really can't care for ourselves without others and others who are outside of us, others who can see things that we can't see. I think that is so important. If you are interested in learning more about the REST initiative and the work that Neil and his staff do, there will be a link in the show notes. You'll be able to find everything. If you are a pastor or a missionary or someone in nonprofit work and you're struggling and you don't know what to do and you don't know who to talk to, reach out to the REST initiative. I mean, I did and it was helpful. So I really want to encourage you with that. Neil, thank you so much, my friend. Thank you for joining me today. That's been a privilege, Raleigh. Always good to see you and catch up with you. And excited for what you got going on. If you are interested in more stories like this one, buy my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. Also, if you want bonus content, you can click on the link in the show notes to access our new and improved weekly bonus podcast, More Mercy, where I dive deeper into each episode. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave MercyCast a five-star review. I want to hear from you. You can email me at info at mercycast.com. This podcast is brought to you by Let My People Go. To learn more about how you can love your most vulnerable neighbors through your own vulnerability, go to lmpg.org. Till next time, have mercy on yourselves and each other.